Welcome to Disruptive CEO Nation, where your host, Alison K. Summers, is searching the globe to introduce you to cutting-edge thinkers and entrepreneurs whose stories will inspire you to innovate your own business life. Having worked with and coached CEOs and senior leaders from over 90 countries, Alison is taking her own experiences to help today's CEOs and professionals meet the ever-changing demands of the future of work. Now, here's your host, Alison K. Summers. Well, this is Disruptive CEO Nation, and we are thrilled that you have joined us. We are going to head on over to London today to speak to an amazing sole female founder who's going to share her story. And I love it, love it, love it, because as much as we're sustainably conscious, there are so many things in corporations and on the business side that we are absolutely not doing, missing opportunities. And so our guest today is going to talk about being commercial with a conscious. So without further ado, May Alcruni, welcome to the program. Thank you. And May, tell everybody what your company is and what wonderful things you're doing in the world. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm the founder and CEO of uh, Globe Chain, which is a reuse marketplace. So we connect corporate companies to charities and small businesses to reuse and redistribute unneeded items. And we generate social impact data on the giving, something called ESG data, environment social governance data, uh, to the banking world. Um, and I've been running it now for, this is our seventh year. And, and that's fabulous. And I think when somebody first hears what you do, it might sound really simplistic. Oh, well, they just throw up a website and people just, you know, throw, put up what they need and put up what they don't need. And, and it's not that simple, especially if you're going to, um, as, as what you just mentioned, as long as you're going to actually measure and report data, which corporations absolutely need to do today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think if you spoke to my software engineers and uh, if someone said it was just a website, I think they would have a heart attack <laughs> uh, because, um, yeah, it's actually quite complex and marketplaces in general are quite hard business models to get off the ground um, because it, it requires a lot of traction until it gets to a tipping point, then it obviously flows. Um, but what we're doing is really in a new um, industry, it's a new business model. Um, it's still emerging and there's a lot of trust and understanding and learning that goes into it. And you're rightly so, the data actually came afterwards after my journey in obviously building Globechain, um, you know, nearly seven years ago, it's our seventh year now, um, which was quite interesting in the sense of like, how I believed that we could go and get funding and, and set this up and um, how I saw the market in like three years, four years and, until now um, has been quite an interesting journey. And I want to come back to Globechain, but if you listen to the podcast, you know that I am so intrigued by people's personal stories, where they've been, how they've, they've got to where they are today. And, and may I think you have quite an interesting story because you're not originally from the UK and this isn't originally what you set out to do in life. So share with our listeners a little bit about how you got here. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I was born actually in Iraq, in uh, Basra um, in, in, eight, in 1980. And, um, and basically um, my parents came over here to study and as everyone know, a war 
uh, ended up happening and um, we ended up staying in the UK but actually we settled in um, a city called Leeds which is in the north of England uh, which are where I ended up obviously um, going to school and having an education and um, you know culturally you know the incentive to kind of work hard you know get a career and some money because you've got an opportunity as this first generation um, of, of of, you know children that come in from parents that come from different backgrounds so I was always brought up to either be a doctor a lawyer um, a pharmacist or something there was there was never a word that was called entrepreneur in those days um, but I always thought you know like I, I always knew I was going to do something but I didn't know and um, what I did was basically I ended up working in investment banking um, I actually started up in insurance and I got a job in London, so I moved um, moved from the family home down here on my own and basically had to start my own life, if you like, at like 21, 22 and, and started working into banking. And um, it was a great experience, to be fair, from a corporate perspective, because I got taught, I got trained, I got taught to talk to brokers and traders, used to fundraise for hedge funds and property funds and so on. So that investment banking background um, was actually quite an interesting foundation for me. Um, you know, I didn't wake up one day and go, I want to work in waste <laughs> that came from working in the banking for so long and feeling slightly unsatisfied with, okay, I was earning money, but I felt like there was no substance, but I just didn't know why um, until one day our bank moved offices across the road. Um, they kept the buildings, um, but they were disposing of the furniture. So they actually came around and said, you know, what color carpet do you prefer? This blue or this blue? And, you know, what chair and table do you like? And I said to them, you know, why are you, give, you know, why aren't you giving this away? And they were like, oh, we don't, you know, we're just going to throw it away. We haven't got time. Um, you know, and don't forget, this was the days sustainability wasn't a word. Uh -huh. you know, it was like CSR and CSR made, meant HR and people in those days and there definitely wasn't the word reuse you know we were just hitting recycling at that point um so i just thought this is crazy and i got talking to them and i asked them how much money does it cost you to dispose of it and buy us new and move everybody and it turns out um in the uk it cost them fifty thousand pounds per person to make per person person because it's wow. just the cost of removal it's the buying new products it's just everything and we had 300 people in the building and I just thought that was kind of commercially like crazy and I just thought why is no one digitalized digitalized waste because Airbnb and Uber were just kind of becoming famous in the UK and this whole sharing economy was was coming about and I was like why is no one just connected these companies that have stuff to people that need it on a platform um, so I basically had 800 pounds and I paid for a freelance web developer to develop what I thought the site would be. Um, and um, I actually sent out a couple of emails and this was still working in the bank um, to a couple of big companies. And uh, basically the largest retailer in the UK at the time basically sent me an email and said, we'd love to talk. And I went in and said, listen, you know, what problems have you got around um, furniture and they said nothing on furniture but we have a major problem with fixtures and fittings they're really expensive they're bespoke and we spend millions a year on incinerating surely we can do better and um, that was really how Glowtune started so for a whole year um, I tested to see could we shift these products and um, basically the way it works is a company just takes a photo 
list the item, alerts get sent to the members, whoever's interested requests it picks up for free. And I was noticing that we were getting rid of almost 100% of the items through reuse, where charity and thrift stores were basically taking them for their shops. And I think, like you said, for me as, um, as, a, as a business leader, and I shared outside of this interview, that I was recently part of downsizing our office and we felt a, a similar thing. And I'm here in, in Chicago and, and, you know, I work in my um, day now, uh, I choose to work in the nonprofit space. And it's, it's not only about where to do it, what to do with it. It's also about the staffing resources, the time that it takes to, to manage it responsibly. And so I think you're right. There's a lot more price points in the whole disposal and waste piece than people initially think about. Um, yeah, because, um, you know, as you said at the beginning of the interview, you know, like people are like, oh, you're just connecting people together. It's not just like, as you said, like to, we have over 10,000 members in the UK and at one point for every listing, somebody will request it, you know, and if you think of the effort and time having to call up, all those charities and getting rejected and those charities feeling under pressure to take big bulks like thousands of chairs at a time and then they're having to dispose of them because they want to partner with big corporates there's a lot of pressure for charities to do this whereas through the system uh, we speak both languages corporate and charity and charities only request the volumes that they want therefore the company can feel safe and there's more transparency in the sense that these charities aren't going to have to incinerate the products if they haven't got storage or they didn't want the tables they just wanted the chairs but they felt they had to say yes to all of it so there's different behavior and cultural um, dynamics to take into consideration on, on the marketplace and you're taking globe chain outside of the UK it is in other yes. other where is it right now so we're in um, the UAE, United Arab Emirates. We actually have um, a contract. We have a partnership with the royal family there. Um, and that came by a really interesting way, a bit of luck, to be honest, where um, the Khalifa family, the princess, um, basically approached us and said they really love what we're doing and they're very interested in the social impact space and ESG data that we um, collect and they want to roll it out. So we're working on, we just launched with them about three, four months ago and we signed a contract with the Ministry of Climate Change and the Ministry of Community Development to basically um, take all the, the known government charities that they have and, and put them on our database and basically um, uh, give them items for free through the companies in the Middle East. Um, we're also in Spain. Uh, we were pushed in Spain very randomly through one of our luxury global retailers that we have, very well known. And um, so we, we went there as a test and we found Spain grabbed it and Spain's been growing at quite a, a fast rate. And we just secured the Spanish post office there where basically they're gonna give away all those items that never get to you through whether it's Amazon or online buying, um, they end up getting lost in a warehouse. They sit there for a period of time and then obviously the warehouse has to dispose of them. They can't keep the products. So they usually incinerate them and that happens globally. And um, so the Spanish post office Correos is basically um, going to start listing them on our platform actually in the next couple of weeks. Um, and we're also working alongside them on logistics. So they're going to be helping with reverse logistics with us. So to reduce kind of carbon emissions. So um, that's been a really surprising market. We've also done work in France and Germany. 
uh, we're being pushed into Italy, so we'll launch in Italy later in the year. And then from a year perspective, um, we've worked with Invesco Perpetua in Atlanta and Houston and H&M in Milwaukee near Chicago. <laughs> so oh, fabulous. Yes. So they were little trials. Uh, we built a network in three weeks for Atlanta and Houston and Milwaukee the same. Um, and it was a really interesting test for us to see how quickly we could do it from a remote perspective as a business. Um, and in fact, we're actually just about to launch in New York with um, a very famous um, hotel chain um, in um, Manhattan uh, in March. So that's, that's super exciting. So our aim is really to start building up. So uh, we're going to go, go here, mate. You're being commercial with the conscious and you're doing all of these great things. And, and the, the growth of the organization is fabulous. But at some point you had to get it started and you had to get it started. And, and you know, how in those early days, like you said, the software is not cheap. Finding the right team members is not cheap. And you said you had like four years of bootstrapping. So can you share a little bit about that aspect of your journey with our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. So what happens is when I um, naively set it up with, first of all, 800 pounds, obviously I was still working in the bank that first year. So I didn't leave my job to run it because obviously I didn't have the financial uh, stability to be able to, to leave straight away. But as soon as I was getting some clients using it for free, the second year, um, I had to leave because I was getting too busy. But um, I, I went to the venture capital companies I knew at that time and um, proposed blockchain to them and not one person gave me money. And the reason they asked me one question, they asked me, what's your market cap? And I was like, good point, there isn't one. I could not find data <laughs> on how big the market cap was. But um, thank God, Four years later, McKinsey, PwC have done studies, and it just happens to be something called Circular Economy, which is a, another podcast in itself, but Circular Economy basically is um, a $4.3 trillion sorry, industry now, um, and it's all about sustainability and being responsible with how you produce, make, and um, uh, get rid of products, basically. So we sit under that. But for the first four years, I had to bootstrap because no one gave me any funding. Um, and I remember uh, an investor saying, May, it has to make money from day one. So straight away after that first year, I was figuring out the pricing model. And I was like, you know what? We can charge companies a fee to list the items as an annual or a pay-as-you-go. And it has to be cheaper than the waste disposal and incineration costs they're making. And you know, through kind of honest conversations with these corporate companies, we the first couple of companies we had on board. So we have Radisson Hotels on board. We have um, Mace, Waits, um, ScanSquare, I believe, is in the U.S. CBRE, uh, Bank of America, Merrill Lynch use us. So some of these pioneering companies basically took us on board, agreed to pay us these prices, and that allowed me to basically sustain myself and an outsourced web development team four years and then once I had that market cap I went for VC funding and got just under a million so I was one of the only sole female founders that raised over half a million um, uh, last year it, it was less than one percent of, of, of the money given out to female founders last year um, so that's been um, it's been a great breakthrough timing has changed climate change is on the agenda now and um, we're just finding it speeding up. So now we're a team of 10 people. Uh, we aim to be 25 this year. Um, I'd say one major challenge that you don't um, 
really prepare yourself for after you're going through all these problems is um, finding good, talented people on the same mission as you um, that are commercial with the conscience, if you like. Um, because I, I genuinely believe, you know, to scale, um, it's very hard to be a nonprofit to scale at the, at the level we're doing, at the speed we're doing. Um, so for me, it was really important to get that message across. In very early days, people thought we were a charity and didn't take us seriously. Now, not so much. But I would <laughs> say year two was the most difficult because, you know, money was running out personally for me. Um, I was very overworked and burnt out, but just it was gut instincts and stubbornness was like, I know these clients are going to pay and this is working. And we were, we were working with restaurants, construction companies, retail uh, products, and they were going in less than 24 hours on our site reservation. Um, we, for example, we did NHS medical equipment and that actually goes to Western Africa to rebuild hospitals in Ebola crisis and war and conflict. Um, so there was a real satisfaction in where those items were going. And I, I just think you've got to be, it's 80% a mental game business, 10% business and 10% craziness. <laughs> so definitely year two was the craziness stage. <laughs> you start. And then year three, we both broke even, but you know, let's not get too excited. It was a little bit of money, but at least I could pay myself a very basic salary and, and float, you know, pay my mortgage. Um, <laughs> which, which when you say pay yourself basic salary and float in London, that, that does sound like a challenge. <gasps> yeah. But basically a coffee was very expensive for me. So I had no holidays, no dinners. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my, so you, you get to know your friends that you know are happy to pay for a coffee for you so I really appreciate the uh, the support in that sense you know from I mean they probably thought it was crazy but uh, you know it, it paid off in the end <laughs> but well, it's a high strategy so it's not for everyone you know? <laughs> I want to roll back and and come to this um, very specific point and that was um, you know this feeling of being a female entrepreneur and, you know, and, and having these great business concepts that you know have legs, you know they're going to take time, but you know they have legs. And, and then you, you're, you're diligent and you bootstrap it and then you build it to a point where you're like, okay, okay, we're going to go out and, and, and pitch and we're going to go out and find investors. Say for our listeners, again, the statistic where, where you're at about the difficulty of women entrepreneurs getting funding and, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on why is that? Yeah, so I think there's definitely, um, I think two, two reasons. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to try not to stereotype um, men yeah. in this because my VCs are men and they've got women on board and, and stuff like that. So they are out there and I think it's definitely easier now and you know, society's changed since I, I fundraised. But um, what if, um, there's a lot of unconscious bias and as females, we're not confident when we go in. So what I was seeing was a lot of fintech, a lot of these, um, you know, like big idea, big plans of these companies, you know, getting huge amounts of funding on zero revenue. And there was me making a profit, <laughs> you know, and couldn't even get a dime. And I was like, what is it about them that they could get it? Because you know, they were like faking it till they make it, right? Mm -hmm. And I was like, I was doing it. So I was like, hang on a minute. Um, my business is much better than that person's and they got funding. It's like, if they can get funding, I can go funding. So my attitude changed on the value of me as an entrepreneur and my business, because I could see it, you know, like as entrepreneurs, 
the whole word of visionary, right, is about you seeing the future in a way and you can feel it. And, you know, as you said, at early days, you do doubt yourself very much, especially if you're on your own, you've got no one to talk to. But, you know, something inside gets you going. And I'm really, I really genuinely believe like things are changing. Um, and, um, and I remember, um, you know, I've had many experiences when I went to fundraising. I got told I won't raise more than half a million. You know, people are trying to give me very bad deals. Um, you know, the ones that were giving me money very easily were a little bit suspect suspicious <laughs> I was suspicious of them so you know it works the other way around because they think you're desperate but um you know the, my, the questions I got were very different from my peer male counterparts that raised similar amounts of money so you know on, on one particular I got um, by an individual actually he asked me I know it's a bit inappropriate but when are you going to have babies you know but instead of being really offended and angry I just thought you know what you're not the investor I want if this is your thinking um and you know i just said well why don't you give me the money and i can run it and i'll show you when <laughs> you know like you have to be a bit cheeky with them and not take offense and you know it's it's not about playing the game but it's it's about kind of knowing your worth and value like one said oh i don't know if you can manage a team because one of the things about sole founders generally and this goes for male and female is um it's actually you you become higher risk as for investors because if you got knocked over god forbid by a bus tomorrow no one's running your business and that's the that's the plain reason so i had that um I, somebody once asked me a question when they interviewed me they're like may how do you feel about being an ethnic minority sole founder female <laughs> doing, a, doing a business model that's never been done before i was like yeah well you know i i feel like a challenge <laughs> why did you say well i look in the mirror and i feel like may you know yes, <laughs> I, I, exactly that like i didn't even ask myself as ethical minority you know it's just me. and it's the same when people say oh you're a social entrepreneur i'm like okay if you want to call me that i don't mind it but actually i'm just an entrepreneur i'm just leading a business that will be the set business like now tech everybody really is a tech company you everyone has technology whether that's online or in other ways so really is it about social entrepreneurship or just a new movement where the industry and this is an emerging economy and everybody will be social entrepreneurs in the future because they have to so um yeah i, I can't I'm, i won't lie it's like there's some hard um some hard questions that i had to respond to and justify myself and one thing i noticed and you're going to laugh at this is um, I'm quite a smiley person and approachable. And um, I noticed that they weren't taking me seriously as I walked um. in one day. I was in a bit of a bad mood and these investors that I had gone to see, I knew it was a bit of a waste of time because I wasn't really aligned with their criteria. So I, I went in quite miserable and um, not smiling. And I was basically like, here's my business, take it or leave it. And you know what, they offered me money. And, um, and I thought, hang on a minute, let me not smile so much as I go into a meeting. And you know what? Every time I did that, I got offered. People offered me money. Um, so there's interesting things like that. And I've heard through, um, you know, investors where they fundraise for their invest their funds. Um, females figured out if they scraped their hair back, people took them more seriously than it was down. Um, I have long curly hair, so I haven't tried that one yet. <laughs> I might try it on my next round. But um, but uh, yeah, there's definitely it, it's definitely harder. But I think. Um, for me, it just toughened me up. And, you know, I just focused on how great my business was. And, and you know, I, I think, May, you said you didn't want to touch on stereotypes. And, and I've been in business for many, many years. And when I started in business, 
I started in Detroit in the automotive industry as, as um, you know, and I always joke and say I was as skinny as my little finger and I wore skin tight sweater dresses and hair down to my, to my waist <laughs> because it was, it was the era when I started in business. And um, I think I was fortunate that nobody taught me to think about being an underdog. I tell this story where I just looked at the men that had the offices with the windows and I listened to their conversations and I didn't begrudge them. I just said, well, whatever they're doing, I need to learn how to do. And, if I, and, and so it's about, it's not necessarily about um, like pulling your hair back or, 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 you know, there's all this talk about being authentic and I do a lot of, of coaching and speaking and it's, yes, there's a time and place to be authentic. And then there's a time and place to speak the right language to the person. Um, because as human nature, we, we want our tribes to be similar to us. And so, um, it's a very fine line, I think, between what you're describing and talking about unconscious bias, males and females, or just understanding tribe mentality, because getting your investors in, in the UK is very different. And I've done business in the UAE, and I've done business in Spain, and you've got to have three different game faces for those three different audiences, I would guess. Yes, completely. Like culturally and behavior and expectations wise, just from financial figures and the way you approach people is completely different. And I completely agree with you. I see um, doing this like a chessboard, right? Every piece slowly, slowly and surely. And it's about learning the strategy and techniques. Um, you know, like for now, like the last, I, as soon as I fundraised and got my money in, my VCs were already introducing me to investors for my next round a year and a half later down the line you know to create relationships because it that it's like a game that's how you play it and and you know the gender thing for me doesn't isn't an issue anymore because we've proved it with the business but early days definitely but I didn't get angry you know I'm not like one of these feminists like I, yeah. I you know I, I feel really bad some women get it really badly and I'm, I'm just a, a bit tougher to be honest and I think very logically about it and why people approach things in different ways. And you've just got to, as you said, it's a tribal thing. You've got to get it over mm -hmm. the line for us, you know, to get over the line to show that this was um, a credible commercial business, you know, straight away. I wouldn't even talk about the environmental impact and the social impact. I'd say we do it, but my focus was very much on this is our revenue. This is what we're doing. This is what we can do. This is how I think I can grow it strategically. This is, I believe, where the market's going and this is why. You know, I keep it very clean and clear um, and very focused on that for a particular audience. Um, uh, and as you said, like the UAE is a very different ball game because of who they are and what they're trying to achieve there. So you have to understand their motivations for mm -hmm. doing things well. Um, but it's, it's definitely been, um, an amazing experience. Like, I think if I hadn't gone through those things and if I hadn't bootstrapped for four years, um, you know, we wouldn't be where we are, we, where we were. So May, you've, it's been delightful that you've given us this gift of your time. If we came back and spoke with you in three to five years, tell us what's the dream for you either personally or for Globe Chain. 
Oh, wow. Okay. So personally, um, kind of globe chain and me is kind of one at the moment, <laughs> but, um, personally it'd be nice to, uh, get more sleep <laughs> and, um, and feel very happy and, um, to where globe chain, um, will be and proud of it for globe chain. I do believe we can go global very quickly and, you know, we have it in our plan for the next three years, but ultimately if we can give back and do good, through being commercial um i've and i can basically inspire people to do the same and that could be male or female whatever i think everybody will be in a better place and um you know for me that's what success looks like um being able to change an industry and um help people at the same time almost like a domino effect you know we have um, a saying it's like a new life for unwanted stuff but um the new life could be a person's life right because a table it's not just a table. It might be a table to you that you've thrown away, but a table could be a family of 10 people sitting around eating dinner and feeling connected, or a table could be somebody starting up their own business and us helping them save money indirectly, you know? So to me, that's the most satisfying bit. And we, we can create local and global supply chains. Um, I'm happy to like sit back and, and listen to how it's, how it's helped people. That would be amazing. Well, thank you, May. How can people um, find out more about GlobeChain or connect with you? Yeah, absolutely. So um, our website, GlobeChain.com, you can go on there and um, look at things. And obviously we're launching in the US next month. So hopefully that'll be interesting for people in the US. Um, or you can contact us through the contact form and ask for me. We're, um, we're a team of 10 in the UK at the moment. Um, so, um, so yeah, we can, um, we can, we can have a chat or LinkedIn, obviously, or via you, Alison. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, we, we greatly appreciate you sharing GlobeChain's story and a little bit about your personal story. For our listeners out there, if you know of a disruptive entrepreneur, company founder, or great thought leader that we should speak to, just send me a note at connect at allisonksummers.com. Until then, keep your eye on the future. May, thank you so much. Thank you very much. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.